Amen. You can have a seat. And you do pray with me as we look to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather and worship you. And we do pray that our lives would bring honor to your name. And even in this time, as we consider what you have to say to us in your word, we pray that this time would bring honor and glory to your name in our response, in the way we hear, in the way we, uh, respond, in the way we obey, and the way we follow through. Give us the strength by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Watch out! Stay sharp! We are under attack! So, stand up, fight bravely, and hold your ground! Now, we're not really under attack, except that we are. Not physically, but spiritually. We are on a battlefield in the heat of the action right now with with bullets flying, bombs exploding, hand-to-hand combat being waged around us, maybe even comrades of ours on the ground around us. And some of us seem to have fallen asleep in the middle of a battle. Others are lying down or sitting down Or at the least, we have dropped our defenses or fumbled our weapons. We have to wake back up, take our arms back up, and take back, fight to take back, lost ground. Now, we have to remember, the battle that we fight is not against flesh and blood. That's other people, right? That's not the battle we fight. But that doesn't make make it any less real or any less dangerous. It is potentially deadly. And if we are to truly stand our ground, we need to remember something else as well. Something encouraging. See, the battle may not be done, but it is nearly over. It's nearly over. If if you are in a, a battle, a physical battle for a long time, you might grow weak, and weary, maybe injured by the, the fray. You might grow discouraged, feeling you're, you're ready to wave the white flag, to give up. But if God is to be believed, not only has Jesus won the decisive victory in the war that we're in, but he is returning soon as the conquering king who will subdue all of his and our enemies under his feet. It's much easier for us to to stand up, to stand our ground, if we know that the battle is a foregone conclusion. We know that he's already won. We might feel like we can't hold on forever. And that's true. But we can hold on a little while longer. We need to know, what does that even mean? What does standing our ground look like? How do we do that? If we are going to reach the end and still be standing, to stand firm until then, what needs to happen? Well, let's open our Bibles up together to 1 Peter. Final time in 1 Peter will be in 1 Peter chapter 5, the very end of the book. Hope that you have appreciated this book as much as I have over the last eight or nine months. 
come to agree that with those that say there might not be a more fitting book of the Bible for Christians in the 21st century than 1 Peter. It prepares us well. And in the final passage today, Peter is going to summarize the message of the book as a whole and then send us out prepared to face the hostility that the world may throw at us as God's holy people. Peter actually started giving us some final key words last week in verse 6 and 7. You can look at it with me. Verse 6 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. And there we saw the need to, to humble ourselves under God's amazing power and his amazing care for us. However, as, as amazing as that assurance is, it doesn't mean that we are all out of danger already. In fact, Peter's immediate next words start warning us about the danger lurking. Look in verse 8. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. That's essentially saying what I was saying earlier. Wake up, keep alert, stay sharp. All right? And this is the, the third time, actually, that Peter's told us in this short book to be sober-minded. For example, back in, in 113, he said, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He keeps repeating this idea. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Now, I, I wonder if the reason why this was so vital in Peter's mind is because he had failed to do this. Right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he, had, he didn't watch and pray like Jesus asked, and really disaster ensued. Why do we need to be watchful, though? Watchful for what? Peter answers, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, in this chapter, there's this striking contrast between God and Satan here. While God is described as, as lovingly caring for his people, his children, his, his sheep, he invites them to cast their cares on him, to, to comfort them, to give them peace. The devil's goal here is not to comfort, but to frighten. It's not to protect, but to destroy. It's not to, to humble us and then exalt us, but to actually increase our pride and cause our downfall. I think it's crucial, though, that we read this warning in verse 8 in the context of what we saw last week of God's power and God's care for us. Because God's mighty hand has defeated the devil and will ultimately deliver us. But in the meantime, in the meantime... We have to remain on guard. We have to stand our ground. As Karen Job says, she says, When a lion is on the prowl, neither the shepherd nor the sheep sleep, but both are alert and watchful. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now this picture is meant to alarm us. It's meant to alarm us out of apathy or slumber. 
on June 1st of this year, something rather terrifying happened in a small country town in Germany. Might have seen it on the news, but a, a big thunderstorm came through and caused flooding, which eroded the ground around fences at a local zoo. And among the escaped animals after the storm were two lions, two tigers, a bear, and a jaguar. <laughs> the town was put on lockdown. Everyone was told by police to stay indoors until they were able to, to capture the animals and get them back into the zoo. Now, we don't have a zoo here in Ottawa, but can you imagine something like that happening here? And maybe not being told about it. Right? You're, you're just strolling down Main Street, and all of a sudden, around the a street corner, comes sauntering a lion. This <laughs> huge apex predator with his flowing mane and enormous teeth and a deafening roar. <laughs> what would you do? If the if a lion was roaming our streets, we'd want to know about it in advance. We'd want to be warned, so we could stay indoors, right? But Peter's not telling us to stay indoors, but he is giving us a good warning. Listen, there is a lion on the prowl right now. Oh, and by the way, he's hungry, and if he gets a chance, he'll eat you. The lion, he speaks of, of course, is the devil. We saw that. Also known as Satan. He's the most powerful fallen angel out there. Now, just to be clear here, the devil is not God's rival as if they have an equal amount of good and evil power. Okay, that's not the case. Satan is a created being. He has limited power, and he's nothing compared to God. Compared to us, though, he is stronger than us. He's much more stronger than us, and he is set on destroying God's people. Notice that, that Peter calls him your adversary. Your adversary. So it's not like God and Satan are duking it out and we get caught in the crossfire. No, the devil is actually targeting us with his attacks. He's against all of God's works and most especially God's people. So he wants to take us down. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. And given that his time is short, he's... He is determined and he is intent on doing so. Like a lion, right? Stalking its prey and pouncing and then ferociously devouring it. We might ask, beyond the imagery of this, how does the devil actually seek to destroy us? How does he seek to devour us, as Peter says? The answer is that he will use anything he can to bring us down spiritually. Anything he can. He, if he can get us to assimilate back into the ways of the world, great. If he can tempt us and get us ensnared into a sin, that is excellent. If he, can, he will often use suffering or opposition to beat us down, to drive us to despair. He, want, he can make us cower in fear, to, to shrink back from living our, our faith openly. He wants us ashamed of Christ. He wants us denying Christ like Peter did. He may discourage us through constant feelings of guilt or condemnation. He may weigh us down with the, the cares of this world in order to distract us from God. 
He can tempt us with short-term pleasure or wealth or success. I mean, even trivial things. If he can get us to love our phone more than we love God's Word, that'll get the job done. Right? If he can lull us to sleep, to, to spiritual inactivity, mission accomplished. The devil's not dumb. He is cunning. He is creative. But no matter the tactics that he used, we see his goal is really to destroy God's people. Of course, true believers cannot be destroyed as the infinitely more powerful Holy Spirit is in us. But that doesn't mean the devil won't try. And he is still capable of doing a lot of harm, really mauling us, doing deep injury to your faith, crippling your spiritual walk, your vitality, damaging your relationships with other believers, wrecking your family. And some of you here may actually assume you're a Christian, but you haven't ever truly been saved. And if you have not given your life to Jesus in, in wholehearted devotion and repentance, that I would warn you, you are in dire danger of being devoured by the devil. But there's real danger for all of us, just to varying degrees. So what should we do then? After all, being alert and watchful won't help much if you don't know how to respond once you see the lion walking around the corner. Well, we're going to see what to do by continuing to read. Let's look in verse 8 again. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Here's what I believe we're going to see here. Standing firm a little while longer. That's the goal here. Standing firm a little while longer requires alertly resisting the devil. Okay? In order to stand firm, we need to alertly resist the devil and his attacks. Resist him firm in your faith. We don't win here by being passive. And God wants us actively engaged ourselves. We are part of a resistance. Which then begs the question, how do we resist then? Well, it starts with alertness. Okay, the the sober-minded watchfulness Peter talked about. So do you, do you notice if you're, when or if you're prone to attacks? Right, if we can start identifying what could be an attack on our souls, it can help us then respond and fight it. Most of us don't even notice it in the first place. Next, I would say the main part of our resistance has to be our faith. It says, resist him firm in your faith. Peter's not just saying we are firm in faith, but this is actually what resistance to the devil looks like. Tom Schreiner says, believers triumph over the devil as they continue to trust God believing that he truly cares for them and will sustain them until the end. Remember what the, the shield of faith and the armor of God does? 
in Ephesians 6. It says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It goes directly against, it goes directly toward protecting you from the evil one's attacks. Now, of course, all the armor of God can and should be used in our resistance to Satan. And that includes uh, using truth, righteousness, the gospel, salvation, God's word. All these things are, are weapons that God tells us we can use. It really, we need to use whatever weapons are in our arsenal. Because we can't afford not to because Satan's going to do the same. He's going to use whatever weapons he has. So we have to fight fire with fire. Finally, I think a, a key part of our resistance is fought through prayer. Through prayer. Peter's already talked a lot about us needing to be sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. Remember that in, in chapter 4? So, whenever you feel discouraged, tempted, hurt, anxious, don't assume it's the devil. But be aware it could be. And then be quick to rush whatever it is to God's throne, to cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. And see, much of the time, our faith, our, our daily, our hourly, minute-to-minute -minute dependence on God is expressed in prayer. Also be aware, the devil isn't just out for you. He's out to destroy your marriage, your kids. He's out to destroy our church. We have to be on constant guard against this. Like the Lord's Prayer says, deliver us from the evil one. This isn't a, a frequent occurrence in our home, but occasionally we will feel that we are under attack from evil in various ways, whether that's through unusual temptation or weakness or anxiety or strife. And one of us will say, you know, we need to stop and pray. And sometimes we'll do a prayer walk around our home. It's not magic. But often there will be significantly more peace afterwards. You may scoff at a bit of that, that's okay, but there is real power wielded through prayer. And God here actually trusts us to stand against Satan. He says, you can do it. Resist the devil. Not on our own, of course, in his power. And because his spirit is in us, and because greater is he that is in us than he is in the world, we actually can stand firm in our faith and resist the devil. A similar verse in James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He'll flee from you. There's no need to fear him. As long as you have Jesus, he's stronger. What does this look like day to day? Just one example of Many I could give. Think of if you are seriously tempted in an area, and you probably can imagine an area like this where you are struggling to give in to temptation or not. First thing, you've got to be aware of that. You've got to recognize that this is what's happening, that you are under attack. And then put your faith into action. Trust God there. 
Preach the gospel to yourself. Know that, that you can beat this through Christ. And then get on your knees. Get others on their knees for you as well. In verse 9, Peter mentions another thing that can help our resistance. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So notice in that part, Peter's primarily thinking about the opposition that comes through persecution. But notice, one of the main ways to keep our faith strong, even in hostility, is to realize and remember that we are not alone. God is with us, of course. But also, so is God's global family. And I would add to this point, standing firm a little while longer requires alertly resisting the devil as a family. As a family. We should stand firm and resist the devil as a family of believers. Something about sharing fellowship and sufferings with one another as a family lends strength to all. Right? Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, if you're not facing any kind of suffering for your faith right now, this might not make much sense to you. But this can prove hugely encouraging if, if and when you do suffer. See, suffering tends to make us myopic, that's nearsighted, right? And we get focused on ourselves. We start whining, bemoaning about our own trials, what we're going through. But Peter wants to lift our eyes. He wants to, to us to see the broader picture, the bigger picture, the global picture here. And he says, look around. Notice that others are facing this too. You are not alone. David Gunderson says this, says we're not the first ones, the last ones, the only ones, or the main ones who are suffering. In the West, most of our micro-suffering would barely register among so many brothers and sisters abroad. We should remember with prayer and sympathy and great respect the countless others who endure so much more opposition than we do. Even when we face legitimate challenges to our faith, we are in good and noble company. Now, get this. Peter is not saying you should stand firm because someone's always got it worse than you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying stand firm because there are many others standing alongside of you. Right? He, you're not being singled out, so don't freak out. This is normal for Christians to go through this. Job says... Peter wishes his readers to see themselves not as isolated, scattered individuals, but as part of God's holy nation wherever they may reside, and to draw encouragement and strength from their solidarity with believers around the empire. It's like a, a mark of being part of the same family. Part of the, the family of a crucified Messiah. This is what it means to be part of a, a brotherhood, as Peter says. We are spiritual siblings in Christ. We have a, a bond with millions of people who we've never even met around the world. 
I mean, my wife and I, a couple months ago, we walked into to churches in Guatemala and were welcomed with open arms as brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of you have come from all over the world to hear. You're welcomed as brothers and sisters because Christ has brought us together as one family through his blood. Now we share the same grace, the same love, the same mercy, and sometimes the same suffering, sometimes the same hardships. No matter where you call home, if you follow Jesus, you're one of us. We're all in this together. We need to, to draw strength from that, to draw encouragement from each other as we face life's many struggles. And we can draw comfort in the fact that these sufferings won't last forever. That the battle's nearly done. It won't be long before Jesus wipes suffering off the map. And don't take my word for it. Look in verse 10. Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, after you have suffered a little while, little while, now, you only have to face hardships for a little while longer. I know that, that some of you here have been facing various trials for months. Some of you for years. Sometimes for reasons directly related to your faith, sometimes they're not related at all. But you've been hurting. And I know that time can seem to slow down in the midst of pain. But what is this life in light of eternity? A blip on the radar. A blink of an eye. If you were with us at the start of 1 Peter, you remember the, the rope that I brought out? Stole this illustration from Francis Chan about how our life could be summed up in this little tiny section of the rope and an eternity just goes on forever and ever. In light of that, this life is short. Now, Peter says that we may suffer a little while, not because that suffering is going to feel short but because life is short in reality, and it goes by fast. It feels like yesterday that, that my kids, each of my kids were being born. But I've got a seven-year-old now. And many of you can relate to this even better than I can. You're saying, just wait, right? They'll be teenagers before you know it. They'll be out of the home, married, getting married themselves, having kids of their own before you know it. Well, guess what? Before you know it, we'll all be dead. <laughs> How's that for fun news? <laughs> but if you're a Christian, before you know it, you'll be with Jesus. It's, you blink and this life will be done. I believe that really needs to, to help us, to encourage us, even in suffering. It's a comfort in trials to know that this is coming. And this is where Peter turns as he wraps up his letter. Verse 10 and 11. These verses are really the, the heart of Peter's conclusion. Here's the, the last taste that Peter wants to leave 
in our mouths as believers for us to savor. I'll give you the point first, then we'll read it. Standing firm a little while longer requires patiently yearning for eternal restoration. Okay, to stand firm until the end, we need to patiently yearn for God's eternal restoration. Get a load of this promise. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is what we're waiting for. And notice here the, the source of what's to come. It says the God of all grace. God is defined by grace, by his giving abundantly to us, even though we deserve nothing from him. And he's the God of all grace. There is no true grace apart from him. And this is what we're now destined for, thanks to his grace. We, it says we are called to his eternal glory, called by him, chosen by him, in order to share his own glory. That's mind-boggling, if you start to think about it. God is all-glorious. He deserves all glory for himself. In all glory in the universe should go to him. But out of the overflow of his glory, out of his generosity, out of his grace, he invites us to share in his glory. We were called, past tense, in order to, to share in his glory, future tense which should seriously affect the way we're living now in the present. What will happen to us when we get even a shard of God's eternal glory? It says, called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Those four verbs all describe the power of God's grace in our lives. And they all together emphatically make the same point. I put it as eternal restoration. That sounds really inferior to Peter's own words, I think. But essentially, this is a promise that, sh that the God who has called believers to eternal glory will strengthen and fortify them so that they are able to endure to the end. That's Shriner. One scholar says, calls this a rhetorical crescendo. You know what a, a musical crescendo is? And that's when the music is supposed to get louder and louder. It's supposed to grow in intensity. So it's like, this is a rhetorical crescendo. It's like God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. He'll restore you. He'll take what was broken and make it whole again. He'll complete his work in us. Make us perfect like his son. He'll confirm 
you. He'll, he'll show us and he'll show everyone that we belong to him. He will strengthen you. He'll, he'll give us vigor and power we've never even dreamed of. And God will establish you, putting us on an unshakable foundation which can never fail. And he'll do all this himself with his own two hands, so to speak. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then Clowney encourages us that the hope that will sustain the church through its fiery trial of suffering is hope in the sovereign grace of God. Our brief time of suffering will not turn aside his gracious work. With joyful confidence, we may cast all our cares on him. In my opinion, this has to be one of the most astonishing promises in the entire Bible. However, take note of who the promise is for. It's not for everyone, period. It's only for those who are in Christ. And really, it's only any of ours because of Christ. Right? Because Christ lowered himself to our world and lived the life that we failed to live. Because Christ walked the road to Calvary, nail, getting nailed to the cross, dying the death that we deserve to die. And because Christ rose again, conquering the grave in order to offer us eternal life and joy. It's because of him, those who believe are now, as Peter says, called to God's eternal life glory. Now, if that worries you that, well, maybe you're not included in this promise, you don't need to be. Just come to Christ. Stop resisting Him. And leave your sins. Believe in Him. If you need help with that, you want to talk about it, please come see us. Come to Christ. And fellow believers, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Are you yearning for this day? Longing for it? And don't let the, the hard things that you go through in life cause you to worry, to distrust, or to despair. Make the hard things in life help you to push hard, to press harder into your hope, into your longing here. Let, let Peter's words grow your confidence, even in that time. Grow your trust. Take heart in this. It doesn't all depend on you after all. God himself will do this. As Peter contemplated this glorious truth, all he could do was praise God. Look at verse 10 into 11. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, what did Peter mean by dominion? He meant God's rule, his reign, his power and authority. Uh, in Peter's day, from a human perspective, Rome had all dominion. 
right? They seemed like they had it. It must have felt as though their power was endless. It had gone on for centuries already, and it looked like there was no end in sight. But contrary to outward perception, Rome did not have all the power. God did. People and nations and empires and devils could try to harm the church, try to harm Christians, and they would be allowed to for a little while. They still are for a little while longer. But God has dominion over all of them, and their dominions will end, his won't. If God is on our side, God is on our side, we should be full of trust, peace, and comfort, and praise. And so we worship God like Peter. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Remember that? The amen meant to reflect our response, our agreement to this truth. So, do you want God to have all the glory, all the power, all the authority forever? Okay, to him be the glory, the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That would make a fitting conclusion to our look at 1 Peter, wouldn't it? Right there. However, Peter's got a couple more things to say, just with some customary greetings. We're going to go over them quickly. However, don't dismiss these as insignificant. They're not. In fact, what Peter says will, will actually not only reiterate the main point for today, it's going to add to it. How do we stand firm in our faith until Jesus returns? This is what we're going to see. Standing firm a little while longer requires daily leaning on God's grace. Standing firm a little while longer requires daily depending or leaning on God's grace. In school, when you're asked to write a paper, sometimes you're asked to give a thesis statement, right? And then that one short statement, you're meant to describe your purpose in writing the paper, what you're trying to accomplish or communicate through it. And it's not just, I'm writing this paper because I have to and I want to get a good grade. <laughs> it's something more like, I aim to persuade that the senators should keep Eric Carlson. <laughs> Well, in verse 12, Peter essentially gives his thesis statement. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, Silvanus there at the beginning, that's likely another name for Silas, as in Paul and Silas. Silas was possibly used to transcribe this letter, more likely to deliver the letter to where it was going. But whatever the surrounding details, Peter's main point couldn't be clearer. Why he wrote the letter. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. He wrote to exhort that's to, to command, to challenge, to, to instruct those who hear. And he wrote to declare, to make a proclamation, to testify. And what did he want to declare? That this is the true grace of God. Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus. And he knew that it was all true. 
Jesus came to us full of grace and truth. He knew that. And Peter's like, you need to know this too. You need to know it's true. You need to, to trust in the gospel. Your life needs to be transformed by this grace. And you still need this grace now. Did you see his really short, concise point there at the end of verse 12? This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It's not just you are saved by God's grace, so thank God for it. Or you will be given eternal life by God's grace, so look forward to it. It's you need to stand firm in God's grace right now and every day. Grace it's how we can daily remain standing and ensure that we are still standing when Christ returns. We must not imagine that here at the end, we're urged to stand firm on our own power. Right? We, we did nothing to earn our place in Christ and His kingdom. We cannot now stand firm in our own goodness, in our own morality, in our religious life, or in our, even our resistance to evil. We can't do it. We must continue to cling to God's grace in trust. It's not what we have done or can do. It's what God has done for us. Standing in grace is our only hope that we're going to make it to the end. After all, we know ourselves. The late Christian musician Keith Green wrote a song called Grace by Which I Stand. And he sang, Lord, I remember that special way I vowed to serve you when it was brand new. But like Peter, I can't even watch and pray one hour with you. And I bet I could deny you too. But nothing lasts except the grace of God by which I stand in Jesus. I know that I would surely fall away except for grace by which I'm saved. Are you trusting in that grace today? And only in it? Nothing else will last except the grace of God. So whenever you fall, keep coming back to the cross. Keep finding His grace there. Whenever you fear, keep coming back to the empty grave. Find His grace there too. Even in, in Peter's final greetings, we can see hints of how to lean on God's grace daily. It says in verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. That's likely John Mark, who wasn't Peter's literal son, more his son in the faith. But the, the she at the beginning there is almost certainly referring to the church wherever Peter was. The church who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen. So both Mark and the other believers wanted to send greetings. You know, tell them we said hi. It's possible that Peter was in Rome 
and used Babylon as a symbolic nickname for Rome. But consider why he would have used that symbolism. All throughout 1 Peter, he's been trying to show us how we are exiles here on earth. We are not where we belong. But if you think back to the Old Testament, when God's people were dragged off to exile, one of the main times was to Babylon. They went to Babylon. And so the mention here of Babylon is a reminder again to, that both Peter and all believers are exiles. We're sojourners. God's people in Babylon and God's people in Asia Minor and God's people in Ottawa have common ground here. We are all chosen heirs of God's grace. We have been elected as exiles for now. We're not alone in this and we can trust God in this. This tells you He wants us here for now. After passing on greetings from his location, Peter then says to keep the greetings going. Verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. I like how the message paraphrases this. It says, holy embraces all around. <laughs> but why would Peter want people to greet one another? It seems so minor, doesn't it? Well, the point is not that you need to go and lay a big smooch on your neighbor today. All right? Some of you might never come back here after that. But by saying the kiss of love, Peter is telling believers to express their love and affection for one another. It's a, it's a brotherly love. It's not a romantic or erotic love, but we're still to show it to demonstrate it. There should be PDAs in church. <laughs> and why? Well, as Clowney explains, Peter's desire was for Christians to show outwardly the tender affection that unites them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. The church is to show that it is the family of God. And see, good and healthy families can't help but show affection for one another. You walk in the door and you give hugs and kisses. And greet one another affectionately. And if we're a healthy family, we need to do the same. It, one simple and significant way that we can do that is in the way that we greet each other. Yeah, it's simple. But it's important. When, when you tell someone hello, can they tell that you're glad to see them? That you're happy that they're part of the same family as you. The, the type of greeting is cultural. Okay, so don't fret. You don't need to kiss anyone today. But the greeting should also communicate affection in some way. Right? So it's got to be more than just a formal handshake. Maybe it is a hug. Maybe it is a, a friendly kiss. Or two, if you're from Quebec. At the least, it's got to be a warm handshake. Strong smile. I'm glad you're in the same family. I'm going to give you an opportunity to put this into practice in just a minute. But let's not miss Peter's final line. 
Look at it with me. It says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Shalom. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This isn't just Peter's polite send-off greeting. This is clearly Peter's prayer. This is his desire for all believers, that we would experience the peace that comes from being in Christ. Think about it. This is why he wanted us to cast all our anxieties on the Lord, so we can have mental peace. This is why he wants us to resist the devil and see him defeated, so we can have spiritual peace. This is why we need to long for the peace that will come when Christ returns. And this is why we need to stand in God's grace, so we can have peace with God above all. So, do you have this peace? You can today. We can stand in it today. The stress and the struggles of life may seem overwhelming at times, but Christ's peace is greater. It surpasses that, I promise you. And I would add, why does Peter center his final remarks around greetings and peace? Why does he go there? I think it's because the love and fellowship that we share as believers and the inner peace that we have are vital forms of the grace of God which we can experience on a daily basis. And we need to lean on these graces all we can in order to keep standing firm. Hebrews 10.25 says, to encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So as we're getting near Jesus' return, this is all the more important that we encourage one another, help each other stand. Like Peter, I too hope that you are experiencing the love of fellow believers and the peace of God. So, let's go ahead and take a step as a church family to encourage one another in this, shall we? Yeah, I'm going to have you greet one another now, but let's not try to shake 30 hands today, all right? Spread it thin. Make sure no one's left out, but I want you to just turn to your closest neighbors right around you, okay? And then, give them what you imagine to be a kiss of love today. Okay, an affectionate Canadian greeting. Wait, 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 not yet, not yet. Because I want you to do something. Okay, not yet, not yet. Hey! <laughs> all right, this is what I want to tell you. What I want you to tell your neighbor, all right? Look them in the eye and say this. Stand firm in the grace of God. God's not finished with you yet.